Hello, and welcome to Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each week I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. For our season one finale, I have two former guests with me, Christy Bauer and Brandon Michael Loudon, to talk about some of the episodes this season and to answer listener questions and comments from our new email address, seentosong at gmail.com. And for the holiday season, we focus the Why Is This So Good section on the Christmas songs in two musicals that you might not think of as Christmas musicals, She Loves Me and Annie. Thanks for being here. We have uh, Christy Bauer. I'm going to say your name correctly this time <laughs> because I pronounced it incorrectly on your episode. Um, and then we have Brandon Michael Loudon back with us to do a special end of season one episode um, where we will discuss uh, the previous episodes and take questions from listeners uh, who have submitted uh, thoughts, questions, comments about the episodes, uh, and just some general musical theater questions. We'll just get started with, um, you know, you did the episode on Female Gaze and you did the episode on the musical Venice. Um, Did you guys get any feedback from people on your specific episodes? Thoughts from others? I definitely did. Uh, I definitely got called out on. We had said that uh, the only characters who got killed in Into the Woods were female. And oh, that, that's technically incorrect. I, <laughs> I, someone said that to me too, and I was like, "Well, that line is incorrect." But then we later um, expanded on that, and we did mention that Mr. Giant was killed as well, and. I think that the narrator character, um, it's debatable whether he's like a character in Into the Woods or, you know, but I guess his mysterious man counterpart was not said, but I agree. The statement that that (laughs) only women characters are killed in Into the Woods is false. It should have read, we should have said uh, most of the women, <laughs> the female right. characters. The discussion is still valid. Yes. Um, I didn't, I, the main feedback I got, or the main piece of feedback I noticed was that uh, fellow former podcast guest, Julia Meinwald, recommended Venice to other people based on my recommendation. So I'll, I'll take that as, <laughs> as the most positive feedback I could have asked for. Oh, funny. Do you, did you, do you know of anyone who started listening to Venice after hearing you t- uh, talk about the podcast? I mean, talk about it on the podcast? I mean, besides Julia, there may be someone who said, oh, I revisited it after you said that. And I thought, oh, the cast recording is really good and I really mm-hmm. like it. And I didn't like it at all when I saw it. Yeah. Which I think was a little bit your opinion. That was definitely, <laughs> well, and also it had just been five years since, you know, I had really thought about that <laughs> that musical so going back to it and I still I put the um the first track the opening on my running playlist oh right <laughs> um so that's that's really fun it's it actually works really well for that revisiting it was was it was really great I was like very happy to because it definitely had like faded away 
in my memory, and never will again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, now it'll now it's out there forever. One thing that sort of even occurred to me after having the conversation about the female gaze is mm-hmm. just how binary the conversation was Mm -hmm. and largely because we were just discussing the history of the form right so uh all of which is to say that i'm excited to see that expand as uh society expands are there any like musicals now we could talk about that would kind of fit into a more expanded conversation that's a good question (laughs) um i don't know what do you think yeah i mean i I've been meaning to see, and unfortunately it's closing soon, but I've been meaning to see, uh, I've been meaning to see Head Over Heels. Yes, I'm seeing Head Over Heels tomorrow night. Oh, oh excellent. Well, I'm very yeah, excited. I also have plans to see that before it closes. Yeah, and... Um, Which it closes on January 6th. Yes. Yeah. All I hear is that it's a good show, and they've kept it open as long as they have because they believe in it. Yeah. Which to me is is a good sign of just... The fact that it's not like a cash grab means that there's something good in this show that made people believe in it and want to keep it running, even if it wasn't something commercially viable. And the fact that that's the true of something that's on Broadway is is notable and means it's worth seeing regardless, I think. Totally. Good point. There's probably shows being written now by by up-and-coming musical theater writers who are thinking in that way and and have that experience so the musical theater form can only expand from here so what we did was um put out to our listeners uh a call for questions comments thoughts about the episodes uh that we had this season and we got back a few um great thoughts and um We'll start uh, with this one from an anonymous listener from Philadelphia. So this person writes, In The Music Man, the song Wells Fargo Wagon pivots the show. It changes Marion's opinion of Harold Hill, and perhaps our opinion too. The basic song wasn't written as such. The lyrics are strictly about the deliveries from the Wells Fargo Wagon. But the choice to have Winthrop sing a stanza was the subtle choice that turned the story. Do you see any other choices like this in the musical, meaning in the Music Man, or other musicals and songs, where a simple, subtle choice changes the show? And that uh, stemmed from our episode uh, with Benny Gammerman about the Music Man. So what do you guys think? about we can start small what do you guys think about the analysis of that moment um as uh a uh pivotal moment that's not done uh that's done in song but it's not done explicitly in like the lyrics of the song well i i think that speaks to the brilliant construction of the music man mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about the music man is there there are, are two songs in the show that share a melody good night my someone which is uh mary the librarian's i want song mm-hmm. and 76 trombones which is uh harold hill's not i want song but his sort of like calling card song yeah like tour de force yeah like and that. so like i think the use of uh, musical motif is mm-hmm. really uh, 
I, I won't say subtle because it is the exact same melody, mm-hmm. but we see them tied. We feel them tied yeah. before we even necessarily see them as as viably tied. Right. And so I think the sh- the show is a lot subtler than it gets credit for. Right. You can keep going deeper and deeper into like layers of especially with the music. I have struggled to think of a, another example that's as good as that of yeah. how you can yeah. how you can how you can do something that hinges on not not the song itself but the repercussions of what's happening in the song mm-hmm. all around it. It feels like something that happens in Candor and Ebb a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. In particular, uh, well, th- and they sort of are masters of the kind of thing where a song is happening and it's a performance within the show, but it's really yeah. about something else. And and the lyrics, you suddenly realize, relate to something that you know because of context outside. Interestingly, yeah. uh, I, I think one of the best examples of that is in Cabaret. Uh, and it's also an act one finale moment, which is the point at which Tomorrow Belongs to Me becomes Ooh. diegetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Because the song itself, again, is, is doing one thing, but the implications of the moment are yeah. huge. Well, it's almost like Wells Fargo Wagon becomes part, not necessarily diegetic, but it becomes like they're actually singing at this moment because the fact that Winthrop is singing is a main plot, is a, is a turn. It's not just that he like, um, you know, steps out and recites, like he comes out and sings. So that's like a major moment. And yeah, I just think probably in within this musical, the other song that I would, another song that I would say is similar to that is Trouble. Cause it's like, it's it's like an action through a song that he's talking about something. They're just talking about something that's not what he's actually trying to do. Um, like, uh, like the song. It's like show don't tell. Like, yeah, yeah. Like the Winthrop's not saying like, oh my gosh, like I'm so happy now I can speak. I, I'm gonna speak. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's just comes out and sings the song that everybody else is singing. Um, Oh, and uh, oh, this musical is a great example of how to do that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's man. like um, <laughs> the action is happening through the act of the song itself. Yes. Yeah. So, like, you know, I mean, we discussed this on the Music Man episode, but the when trouble happens, he's he's got this agenda that he's using the song to do, and uh, so like that maybe happens even more times in the music man. I'd have to think The whole musical is a con, right? It's brilliant. The whole musical. I was thinking about how 96,000 from In the Heights uh-huh. is, is a very similar song in some mm-hmm. ways. It comes in the middle of Act One, mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, it's sort of like a tentpole number, but it's like the community all singing about things they're dreaming about and hoping for. Uh, kind of thing, and I think that the the moment that Sonny comes out and sings his verse or raps his verse, mm-hmm. that uh, which is all like you know, as we would say now is very woke, uh-huh. um, <laughs> is, you know, a word that I think did not exist when In the Heights was running, uh, but he you know he reveals this sort of like underlying kind of political activism that's in him that you don't really get before that, mm-hmm. and and you don't see. And is played off as a joke 
in the moment of the song, yeah. but I think really lays the groundwork for an important part of the motivation for Asnavi at the end to stay mm-hmm. is the idea that Sonny needs him there and needs him as a role model and has this potential to be someone who's a mover and shaker mm-hmm. and who, who thinks in this way and, and is very active in his community. And of course, that idea of like being part of the community and investing that, and his he's the first one to say, like, I would invest that money back in to our community mm-hmm. because that's what we really need. And that idea is, is, you know, what ends up winning out in the show. Yeah. So I think that subtly, perhaps subtly, you know, <laughs> that's, that's underlying, uh, like a really important thematic idea that the show is, is sort of front loading there so that you already have that in inside your head and your heart when that decision comes around much yeah. later. This is more like a comment. Um, This is from the episode where we talk about plot twists. um, And we were talking about um, whether the end of Act 1 of Sunday in the Park with George is, in fact, a plot twist or not. Um, So this is what Mark from New York writes uh, to us. I just listened to the plot twist episode, and I would argue that the end of the first act of Sunday is a plot twist. As your guest says, we are all we are expecting all characters to be in crisis mode, and that's what propels us into the second act. The brilliance of Sunday, for me, is that all the little plot lines we've been following have reached crisis mode. The various love triangles, flirtations have all come to a head. Dot and George have not reconciled. Even Mr. and Mrs. can't find their way back to America. The plot twist to me is that all of a sudden, none of it matters. That literally shocked me the first time I saw it. Okay, so abandoning plot threads isn't exactly a twist, but it certainly upends audience expectations. Um, He goes on, but we'll we'll talk about this part of it first. Um, Comments. (laughs) I mean... It, it really comes down to how you define the phrase plot twist. Yeah. Because it's definitely a change and it's definitely a surprise. Right. Um, I, I'm very curious what uh, the, the person who uh, didn't stay for act two oh, yeah. thought was going to be. Right. Uh, I did mention my a friend of mine who... Uh, decided to leave at intermission because she thought she knew where it was going. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting to me, like, what led her to think that? Like, because that the plot twist that Mark is talking about in this comment is kind of what's coming before the, before the end of the act. Like, now, they're, now they've made the painting. But the other plot twist is that you open on Act 2 and it's like 100 years later, which, like, those are two different, those are two different story points, basically. Yeah. And uh, one could, they both could be, I guess, seen as a twist. My personal feeling as an audience member is if I feel like I'm in good hands with the storyteller, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether I know what's coming or not. Right. I, I understand the... The, the Sunday contrarians from the perspective of mm-hmm. it. The first act does feel like a complete story yeah. in and of itself. It does feel very self-contained, but the idea that it can be something even bigger 
Right. But that it, it can be a complete thing within right. an even more complete thing. Well, and if you're looking at the Dot and George relationship, it's not the end. Like, it's not complete. They've right. broken up. They are at odds with each other. And the second act is there to resolve that. I think when you're first seeing that show, it's kind of hard to see that that's what the second act is about. The ends of that first act is just, ma- I mean, it's like magic. It's like what is happening. It's like the like it's almost like a big force is like coming together. Like, well, as as Mark said, like all these all these people are in crisis mode, crisis, and then like I, that's a great observation because I never thought about it that way. That like, oh, I never really think about all the minor characters. Right. They just sort of seem like comic relief or whatever. But mm-hmm. right, their stories are also coming to this place right right they're all in the painting yeah the thing about the painting is it's huge yeah it's really Mm. big i mean it's and and the closer you get to it the blurrier it gets so it's all about perspective and the the more you step away from it the more it makes sense so 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 that that's essentially what act two of sunny the barker is doing is is the more you step away from it the more it makes sense The line that always sticks with me when I think of the George and Dot relationship is not anything that they sing to each other, but is in Act Two when uh, when she says, "There she is, there she is." Mm-hmm. He must have loved her so much. Yeah. Which is so. I mean, the thing that I love is in the orchestrations of the show. There is a chime that doubles the melody. There. Oh, he must yeah. have loved her so much. It's like this is important. Yes. <laughs> and and it it is just like. Such a thing to think about because it's not, it, and it doesn't shy away from the difficulty and complexity of that. Mm. It just states it because it's it's something true and and leaves us to, you know, ponder that and 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 deal with that. I mean, to bring it back <laughs> to the plot twists, um, it's just not what you expect. It's not what you are thinking you're going to get, and for a lot of people, it's hard, at least on a first viewing, or you know, to. To really, um, to really go with that, to like, be like, um, willing to be pushed 100 years in the future suddenly and have no recognizable. I mean, the actors are recognizable, but have no recognizable characters. Um, it's like starting a new season of like a reality show or something. You're like, where's my favorite like person? Um, and you have to just like reorient yourself all over again. Um, after well first after you know it's hot up here mark also says that um as far as light in the piazza goes i do think there is a bit of a twist in the second act when we find out that she's actually in her late 20s it didn't really play with kelly o'hara because she seemed more mature and was older when she played clara but i would call it a literal twist in the plot you know, it's interesting because I never saw Kelly play it, and I, I never saw it live, but I saw the Live from Lincoln Center, mm-hmm. which is with Katie Rose Clark. Yes, um, I saw it with Kelly and Katie, oh. so I have, I definitely have opinions. Yeah. That raises an interesting question, though, as to what casting brings yeah, to material. Yeah, I mean, because, it totally was the casting in this, because yeah. I saw it with both of them, and, you know, I saw it when it first opened with Kelly O'Hara, and, you know... Everyone, she was wonderful. Everyone sounded wonderful, but the show didn't grab me. I mean, I thought it was beautiful. I was, you know, but it just didn't grab me in the way I wanted it to. 
And then about a year later, I saw it again with uh, Katie Rose Clark. And it was like, and there was a different uh, Fabrizio as well. It was Aaron Lazar, yes. right? Yes. And who, so, who I also... Uh, Matthew um, Morrison. I also just felt that was a better casting choice. Um, but I, when I saw both of them, I was, I got the show. Like, I got it. And mm. I like, I was like, oh, this is what they were trying to do. And this is why, and this is now effective for me. So let's move on to the next uh, question which comes from uh, Anonymous. Um, in episode five, which was the adaptations episode, um, we, you talk about the prologue from Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. How unusual is it for musical theater uh, shows to have a prologue? And if the songs should be woven into the book, why do we need prologues? Or on the other hand, do some shows need a roadmap? Comedy Tonight from a Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum was this kind of prologue. Is it an overture with lyrics? How would you define a musical theater prologue, and in what circumstances might you write one? I think that whether there's a prologue or not, is is you're answering the same question as... You're answering the question, how do I start the show? Yeah. I need to start this particular show that's about this thing in a specific way that makes sense for the story I'm trying to tell. Yeah. And that's and and that dictates your choice of right. it's how all, I'm going to open the show yeah, it's regardless of what you're doing. It's yeah. content it's dictates like a, form. Yeah. That I knew there was a <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks Steve. <laughs> it's like yeah. a it's like a tool. It's like a tool you can use to open your uh, to tell your story, to yeah. open the story. Even with opening numbers, there's big opening numbers that introduce you to the world, and there's teeny, teeny, tiny opening numbers that introduce mm-hmm. you to one aspect of the world, but by yeah. doing so, introduce you to the entire world. I mean, that's... Right. What, what to focus on in this yeah. world. Right. I, I think that the crucial distinction is the two examples that were given, Forum and mm-hmm. uh, Comet, mm-hmm. are very uh, meta-self-aware openings, uh-huh. which are establishing a meta self-aware show mm. like the the opening of a show is establishing tone establishing story establishing world and i mean prologue i don't i don't know that i necessarily associate the word prologue with meta explanation of what you're about to see yeah uh, because I, I would think of the opening of Into the Woods as a prologue. It is called a prologue. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it is, and it's it is very labeled, seamlessly part of the show. It is labeled prologue. Yeah. Yes. But I, I, was, I actually looked up the word, the, the word prologue just to see what like, the actual definition was. And it was just saying, like, uh, uh, give, it's giving us information we'll need for the story. Right. Or, like, kind of a backstory that may be needed for the story. Because I also think that the opening of Les Mis is referred to as the prologue. Yeah. And, and it's like the first ten the, songs. Well, when you're sure. adapting a book like Les Mis that's like <laughs> yeah. this thick, um, you need to just kind of like probably condense a bunch of things into a prologue before like the main story you want to tell from it. Is, but that's starts. like the least self-aware show yeah. I could possibly yeah. think of. But but again, it's doing the same thing. It's right. telling you this is the kind of thing that you're in for. You know, this is where we are. Right. Yeah. I I mean. I may, well, I was just thinking that the example that sprung to mind was Book of Mormon, which is definitely doing the meta thing. Mm-hmm. But I think actually 
the prologue of Book of Mormon, now, and I'm thinking on the fly now, I don't think really is about establishing that this is going to be a meta show. Mm-hmm. I think that's established when you hear that it's Book of Mormon and that it was, like, written by the South Park guys, and you know that's what you're going to. Like, you already know that, so they don't right. need to establish that, really. And, in fact, the prologue, while it does obviously have that that sense of style, the whole show does, and that's just, that's the aesthetic you already know you're getting. Yeah. What the prologue is doing is actually very, very functional in terms of, is, is much more like what Les Mis is doing. It's saying, like, here is a story that you need to know before our story starts. Right, right. And and once you know this, this is going to help you to understand this story. It's mm-hmm. disjoint from it. Our story yeah. starts way after this, but you're going to want to know this first. I'm trying to think of a show that has more of like a in medias res, like you're dropped in the middle of it opening. Yeah, and I can't... Same, same. I mean, because even the ones that I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of things like Good Morning Baltimore, which is like, yeah, the beginning of a day, but at the same time, mm-hmm. you know. yeah. Yeah, and I, well, I looked up, just tried to look up some shows that, like, had prologues, because I was like, which ones? That's how I knew, like, Into the Woods is actually called prologue. But um, some other ones were uh, Beauty and the Beast has a prologue, that whole, like, um, story. Oh, the, like, the rose. Yeah. Right. Uh, So that's definitely, uh, and there's, it's not a song, but, unless it is in the musical version, I've never uh, seen it, but, um, it's it's functioning as a prologue there. Um, little Shop of Horrors has a little prologue before uh, the song Little Shop of Horrors starts. Um, uh, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat has a little. The it has a narrator, so the narrator comes out, you know, and does a a little like setting the the scene type of thing. Um, the one that I found really interesting was West Side Story has a prologue and it's which is the dance which is all which barely has any words Mm. Uh, there's a little bit but barely has any words and it it just made me think about like well there are other ways to get information to set up your story other than words music movement um so your prologue could be like that which is um that's giving you information through uh, well, that one probably through the movement, but also, I mean, and then there was a question like, is an overture, like, what is an overture doing and what is a prologue doing? Is the overture a prologue in a way because it's giving you musical information about what to expect? Yeah. It's funny because overtures, you know, they say were originated as a way to sell the songs and, and to fill time while people were still getting in their right. seats. But, you know, I mean, I, of course, in in the world now think of overtures as like an integral part of the experience of the yeah. show and how you whether there's an overture and what songs you do in it like matter somehow to the, yeah. the show and it's funny how these it's almost like how like a pigeon language becomes a creole where mm-hmm. um which now you know for for the non-linguist fans <laughs> out there um you know, when when a group of people who don't share a common language come together and they find a way to uh-huh. build just sort of a language that they can at least communicate with, mm-hmm. which is called a pigeon, um, not spelled like the bird. People form sort of a, a constructed language that they can use to to at least communicate between people who. Yeah. And this happens in like uh, trade languages and on islands where people are shipwrecked together. You know, mm-hmm. historically, and um, but in the second generation. The, the children of that group of people 
learn that language as if it's a real language mm-hmm. and it becomes for them a natural language that operates with the same grammar and syntax rules that all human language operates mm-hmm. with, which is a really fascinating process. And yeah. that aside is all to say that like the overture has kind of become that for us. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a lot of structures of musical theater that were created for commercial purposes, um, you know, include, you know, on tracks, intermission, things mm-hmm. like that have become part of the form right. and are used in a dramatic and storytelling way now by us because we don't we don't think of them as yeah. being just producers concerns that help to sell tickets or make patrons happy yeah it's i feel like all art forms have that a, a form of that in a way like television uh had to account for commercial breaks and like had to account for us being a specific number of minutes you know things like yeah. that and that became how the structure is formed of it. I mean, now it's, now it's morphing again. (laughs) Right. It's streaming and, uh, you know, all that, but, um, I just thought of another example, uh, that has both a prologue and an overture, which is Phantom of the Opera. Oh, where if you think about it, you don't necessarily need that scene in the future with Mm -hmm. old man Raul and, you know, the auction. It's entirely there to, uh, set up world and scope yeah. right uh, because it goes from you know the dusty thing to you know the, <laughs> the, the big bombastic overture which uh, is as loud as it is and is orchestrated the way it is to cover up the clanking of the machinery of the chandelier right <laughs> uh, but it is exciting. It, 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 it tells you, you know, something exciting happened here. This is an exciting story. Yeah. Uh, but again, not, not especially meta and not giving you a whole lot of information other than something spooky happened here. <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I'm like, you don't necessarily need it other than just to, like, set up spooky tone. Because if you were dropped into the middle of the story from the beginning... You know, the the very first scene after the overture and everything is established is like you're dropped right in the middle of an an opera rehearsal, and like ninety five percent of your audience is gonna be like, why should I care about this? But if you tell them this is a spooky place where spooky things happen, <laughs> then they're like, okay, I'll deal with the fact that there are all these <laughs> people with French names that I'm never gonna remember. <laughs> cool. Well, let's let's move on to another question. This question comes from Erica, and it's kind of a general question. It's not tied to an episode. Uh, which instruments are underutilized in musical theater scores? Theremin. Theremin <laughs> is the answer. Um, although, we'll, uh, we'll shout out to uh, Be More Chill. There's Theremin and Be More oh, Chill. Right. So we're going to have Theremin on Broadway coming to you uh, next year, so that's exciting. It speaks to the types of stories being told and the types of people doing the, the storytelling. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think the, the more we make room for uh, non-traditional voices uh, yeah, and, on stage. And uh, writers from non-American writers. Yeah. yeah. Like all our, almost all the writers of musical theater uh, in the you know, higher levels of Broadway are American, um, some Canadian. Uh, some British, all English speaking, um, you know, but people are writing musicals uh, from many, many countries, um, Korea, South Korea, um, most notably. 
so many countries that come that want to write musical theater and they're bringing their own culture to it and it's usually thought of as like this american art form um it doesn't have to be like it's maybe it started that way and um but there's definitely room for expansion there as well um another um uh, this there's this musical this past year uh I'm going to butcher the title, A Thousand and One Nights and One Day. Um, yes. And I just thought the Marissa Michelson, yes. is that her name? Marissa Michelson um, wrote uh, an amazing score for that that used, I mean, she used a variety of instruments, but the voice, um, the way she uses the voice is super fascinating. And if we're talking, we... Um, you know, think of the voice like we is all the time used in musical theater, obviously, but the way she was using the voice in that instance was not typical. It was using it as an instrument, as sound. Another question from Erica, uh, tell me about a musical you've seen that you think deserves a revival and why? Giant. Giant! Oh, that's if, such a good answer. It was the word that immediately entered my heart. Yeah. I knew you would. I was, I, yeah. Yeah. That's the answer. It has to be the four-hour version yeah. that comes back. Because oh. I wish I had seen that. Same, same. I, I, I just, I mean, I just feel like Michael John Lacuse's show should just come back. Like, they should just, like, cycle through, like, every year. We should In have rep. a different. An yeah. endless rep. <laughs> I know. Giant is amazing. Yeah. And and the book, Sybil Pearson, that book of a musical is shockingly good. Like everything you could ask a book of a musical to do, it does. Mm. The 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 desert scene, which they rightly recorded in its entirety, just a scene of people talking mm-hmm. on on the cast recording, is one of the best scenes in the history of musical theater. Ugh. Just the scope of it. It it's you want to talk about world building and dealing with a lot of disparate parts. Man. I mean, like, my, my first thought walking out of there was, like, I was surprised that there wasn't dust on my shoes. Another question from Erica is, are there any Christmas holiday-themed uh, important plot point musicals? What, I guess, which what musicals um, where holidays and Christmas play an important part? Uh which will segue into our why is this why is this so good section, which we're still doing. Um, yeah, but before we go there, uh, do you guys have anything to to add to that question? Rent. Oh, uh, you know, I mean, there are many Christmas movies and specials that are musical that I right. love very much. Right. Uh, Caroline or Change has a Hanukkah scene that I <laughs> that I enjoy. Yeah. That's a good scene. That's a good show. Turkey lurky time. Turkey, oh, there we have it. That is the answer. Let's talk about turkey lurky time. Go on YouTube and find when they did turkey lurky time on some like late night show or variety show or something, but like find footage of the original choreography of that number. It is gangbusters. To other shows that use Christmas uh, in different ways are She Loves Me and Annie, which I consider um, my two 
favorite Christmas musicals that no one considers Christmas. <laughs> um, a broad category. Yes, a very broad category. Definitely with these two. Uh, maybe Rent. Rent can also be in there. Sure. Um, but uh, so I thought it would be fun for the uh, why is this go- so good section. Uh, since it's holiday season time, to talk about why uh, the two main Christmas songs in those musicals are so good. Um, And those are 12 Days to Christmas from She Loves Me and A New Deal for Christmas from Annie. Let's start with 12 Days to Christmas from She Loves Me, since I think She Loves Me actually does use Christmas as a plot point, whereas, like, Annie doesn't really it comes in at the end so to just brief uh summary of the she loves me plot uh the setting is a store what kind of store is it what do they call it a it's like a it's like a perfumer yeah Yeah. it's like a but it's it's sort of like an old-fashioned drug store um because they have like face cream and all kinds of cigarette cases that play music yeah (laughs) (laughs) But, um, so, in this, in this song, uh, they are, uh, preparing for Christmas at the store, and it's, like, a big, a big thing. Um, that's probably all the plot you need to know for this song. (laughs) I love that it captures the specific hell of working retail at Christmas time. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And the sort of, uh, uh disparity between you know the the forced jollity of the season yeah and how frenzied and awful people can be yeah i mean i especially love that it's in the music in a way like that the the as it gets closer it goes 12 you know down to one you know um like as it gets closer like the the uh the music uh, gets shorter and shorter. Yeah, they're playing with time signatures in a really, yeah. really fun way. Or, yeah. or at least, I mean, I, I hadn't listened to Count It Out, but I know, I know in, in my in my memory of it, the the way the beats they're they're dropping beats or their phrases are taking yeah. are being compressed. Yeah, in, it's being compressed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's it's really it's an effective music. It's a great like way of using a, a compositional technique uh-huh. to, to accomplish something dramatic and, in, and even comedic. love how it like it takes the on the the 12 days of christmas song and like uses it as like a jumping off point for like like that's like a nice happy song that is very calm and we all sing that and then this is like the inverse of that which is like uh like uh anxiety like uh, from the retail people, also from the shoppers, like, oh my gosh, I haven't bought all my gifts yet. <laughs> it, it inverts uh, 12 Days of Christmas, too, because w- when you sing 12 Days of Christmas, you start with on the first day, right, working right. your way to 12, and they're working backwards in this. So, yeah. like, y- you you start feeling the crunch from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Also, it must be said, a great example of a song that does something we're 
discussing earlier of of the the plot that happens in this song mm-hmm. ha- is almost incidental to what the song itself is about. Yeah, and and it's it's more of a sequence that's sort of carrying us from moment to moment as we're watching the more important action of our our two main characters forming a, a stronger relationship. What a day! Just wait until the twenty fourth. much enjoy the the very um low low budget joke of we're not, not the, the sheeple who, who popped, popped in time, time. <laughs> yeah or what the sheeple who that? peeped in time oh yeah, yeah. The, the, that's the lyrics start like people start messing up words that is that is just perfect stuff right there <laughs> so good cool well let's go on to a new deal for Christmas. <laughs> I just love this song so much. This song shocked me. Yeah. I have not. I have. Uh, I've never seen Annie. I'm not <gasps> familiar with it. You so didn't funny. know that the New Deal was the result of a nine-year-old orphan. Oh, I think she's ten, right? <laughs> it's it, it's telling that the the quibble you had with that statement was the age of the child. <laughs> well, no, that's like the whole delightful thing about Annie is that it's like the whole thing is like a making fun of like the the whole New Deal FDR as a character and uh, the whole cabinets in it and. I have no idea what Annie is about. Wow, I'm well, learning so much today. When you're a child and you see Annie, it's about the orphans. When you're an okay. adult and you see Annie, it's about the For Great sure. Depression and the politics of that time. Yeah. Then when we get to this song at the end, New Jeff, which is so like tongue-in-cheek, but it's also like this bouncy, happy, like joyful song. I read something interesting uh about Annie earlier today, which is that uh, Thomas Meehan, who wrote the book, yeah. uh, got the idea to write a Little Orphan Annie musical during the Nixon years, mm. and uh, sort of inspired by the economy of yeah. uh, 1972-ish. <laughs> uh, and he had gone back to the Little Orphan Annie uh, comic strips and realized that there wasn't a whole lot of story, so the majority of this is not actually derived from the yeah. source material. It was created whole cloth. Right. I mean, you can kind of tell when you're... Sure. Like, just, I mean, what from what we've been talking about, like, just this whole, like, wink-wink about, like, the time period. So let's let's talk about this song specifically. Um, aside from the hook, we're getting a new deal for... For Christmas, I mean the 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 first line is I know the depression's depressing. So even with <laughs> so even with that line, I mean you kind of you know what you're in for here. I know the depression's depressing. The carols are sealed, the scores are filled, and windows are minus their dressing. The children don't grin, the Santas are thin, and I've heard a terrible rumor. No goodwill, no cheer, but we'll get a new deal for Christmas this year. The snowflakes are rising and falling. 
and I, I, I think the sort of like uh, spiritual link between this and uh, the song and she loves me mm-hmm. is how sometimes Christmas becomes the battle of the haves and the haves nots mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and sort of like the the two sides of the coin of Christmas and uh, I think that's the appeal of this particular story you know going back to the idea that this came out of the Nixon era which was like our current moment very fraught and very cynical and you know you have orphans and you have you know, the displaced homeless of the, the, you know, Hooverville. And then you've got, you know, Daddy Warbucks, which I, I lately got to thinking about the, the implications of that name. Yeah. Warbucks. You know, yeah. it's like, like Dick Cheney, you know, and, you know, <laughs> and, and it, it makes an earnest, a winking but earnest effort yeah. at like, bringing people together mm-hmm. and uh yeah <laughs> uh and 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 ma- making a, a you know a slight comment but also it's so ludicrous yeah there's nothing to fear because they're bringing a new deal for christmas this year but then and then it goes into the bong 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 yeah <laughs> And then, and then the listing of the cabinet members. I know. This is, again, where Roosevelt, is, FDR, is, like, the funniest. He's, like, talking about the candidate, ca- cabinet members as though they're uh, the reindeer. Yes. <laughs> Get along, Cordell Hall. Yeah, that is that was a deep cut for me. Uh, I the I am like like I was just agog at these lyrics, which I I can't tell if are just mind-numbingly twee or genius. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think like certain lines stick out to me as as having that quality that I think of. Um. I, you know, I think of a, a there's a passage in in the Sondheim book where he talks about other lyrics that he loves, yeah. and points out a couple, and he says what he loves about them is because in one line they convey an entire ethos, mm-hmm. and I think that some of that is happening here. Like I think yeah. the snowflakes are frightened of falling, yeah, is is so so silly and delivered by like on on the cast recording these screaming harsh children's voices, <laughs> yeah. and and yet I was like, oh no, I get. I think that's profound somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. I just also love after the get along Cordell Hall line, you have like this four rhymes. Um, yes. With from each group of people, orphans, get along, giddy up, men, call your committee up, women, build every city up, and then everybody, cheer, cheer every, every kitty up. up. But yeah, it, it just speaks to that you know, the only way we're going to find, you know, reconciliation in a moment of, you know, cynicism and division is by being as deeply silly as possible. Yeah. Mm. 
let's end with just uh, our something wonderful section. So either something upcoming that you're looking forward to or something from the past fall, the past year that uh, was uh, that we want to shout out, that we want to praise. The Cats movie? <laughs> you're looking forward to it? Uh, every day, it feels like every day a new cast member is announced. I have never seen Cats. Uh, and I want the pure experience of my first time at Cats to be this Cats movie, whatever it may be. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, Taylor Swift is in it. Jason Derulo Jason is in Derulo. it. Jason Derulo. I am so excited about that. That is, that is the most, that is the most exciting I casting. I feel like this movie is going to have like, a, just a completely different like tone from the, the show, just with all this, all this cast and like the build up to it and everything. I cannot begin to imagine in my mind what it will be. The song that uh, Lin-Manuel just released that he wrote with John Kander. Oh, I uh, heard that one. Yeah, it just released last week. I think it's called, it's either Cheering for Me Now or Cheering for You Now. Um, it's very cool. It, yeah. It's sort of like imagined a like, cut song from Hamilton that yeah. just happens to have Kander's music. And it sort of encapsulates the best of what those two writers bring to a song. Mm. Uh, and it, it's like discovering, you know, flavor combinations that are great together that you wouldn't necessarily think of, like, you yeah. know, dipping french fries in milkshakes kind of thing. I want to shout out something from the past year, which was the Encore's Off-Center production of Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, which um, was just so wonderful to see I was sitting like right near Mickey Grant during it so that was nice too Mickey Grant is the composer and lyricist uh, of the show which is kind of like a review style show um, but there was a song in it called uh, So Little Time that is just like one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard and on the original cast album Mickey Grant is singing it because uh, she was in the show and it's just uh, it's just an unbelievable song Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song and for sticking with me this first season. As I mentioned, this podcast now has an email address, scenetosong at gmail.com. Please write at any time with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater in general. And if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, you can also email scenetosong at gmail.com with your ideas for potential topics. Please rate this podcast on iTunes, subscribe, share it with your friends, and like our Facebook page, Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. We'll return in January with brand new episodes. <laughs>